Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women Leaders in Medicine, a special podcast series led by our section editor on pulmonary and critical care medicine, Dr. Jasbal Singh. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions. Welcome, everybody, to another podcast of Women Leaders in Clinical Medicine. I'm Dr. Jaspal Singh in Charlotte, North Carolina, and with me today are Dr. Seema Kosla of North Dakota and Dr. Anissa Das of Columbus, Ohio. Welcome, ladies. Thank you. Thanks so much. Well, thanks for joining us today on this special edition about trends in sleep medicine, and I was hoping that uh, you both could introduce yourselves. Start with you, Anissa. Sure. So again, thanks so much, Jasfal. I am Anissa Das, and I am at the Ohio State University in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine. And my background is in pulmonary and critical care and then sleep. And I practice mostly all sleep at this point. For the most part, what I do in my career at this point is a lot of sleep education. And I um, am chairing the, the board review course for sleep medicine for the American Academy of Chest Physicians and and work in just uh, worked on a board review book. So that's sort of my most recent projects. That's a lot of exciting stuff. Seema, how about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Seema Kosla. My background is pulmonary crit care and sleep. I've been doing a solo sleep practice for the last 12 years in Fargo, North Dakota. And like many of you, I wear a couple of hats. So my first hat, of course, is my private sleep practice. Uh, but then I also serve as medical advisor for MedBridge Healthcare, which does sleep diagnostics in 22 states across the country. Well, that's a lot of work. Both of you, I know personally, are very passionate about sleep medicine. Tell us like sort of how you got into the role of sleep medicine. What What's your drive and what inspires you in this field? Seema, we'll go start with you. Okay, so mine is probably a little bit unusual. So my first job out of fellowship was, you know, in, in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I'm Canadian, so I had to come to an underserved area to, you know, get my visa. Anyway, so it was really pretty heavy ICU stuff. And in the course of a year, we would wind up intubating like three or four people because of untreated obstructive sleep apnea. And at one point, one guy was like 35 years old. And I remember going out to the medical ward and, and decannulating him. And then just like sitting down on his bed. And I was like, okay, so what is the deal? <laughs> like, why, why are you in the situation? I mean, you just had a horrible right heart failure, right? From untreated sleep apnea. And I'm like, you couldn't just suck it up and wear a CPAP. And we had this really good conversation about not only like choice and selection and that sort of thing, but all of these barriers to care that he had. And he wound up getting so sick from untreated sleep apnea because people would just write him off as non-compliant that he wound up in the ICU with a trach. And so then it really percolated in my brain that we need to do a better job outpatient before we let our patients come to the ICU like this. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, hopefully we're not seeing too many patients like that, but again, I guess we are. So <laughs> I guess that is 2021. Is it, um, Anissa, tell us what yeah, drives no, you. So Seema, it's, that really resonates with me in the sense that, so, you know, as you mentioned, I, I too come from that background of pulmonary and critical care. And those of us who go into that field are often into instant gratification, right? We do it because there's a lot of action and the irony is sleep medicine gives you more instant gratification of fixing people and changing 
how they feel and their quality of life in a quicker way and more dramatically than any other field I've ever seen. Not That does not mean to say that we don't absolutely change lives in other ways, but it's very quick, right? And I think it's undervalued by a lot of folks. So we know if somebody comes in and they're miserable because they're sleepy, they appreciate that difference. And we can change somebody's entire life. And I think it's a lot about what you said, Seema, is that it comes down to being willing to listen to somebody and realizing that you can make a big difference by taking a little bit better history and a little being a little bit more thoughtful. And I think that's probably what defines us from a lot of other fields is that when somebody comes and they say, I can't fall asleep rather than write them a prescription, we often ask how many televisions do you have in your bed? Are you spending really 20 out of 24 hours in your bed? And, you know, and questions like that, where we sort of get to the bottom of things. And I realize what a big difference we can make by doing that. I think those are both great segues into this podcast and the drive and the passion that you have for this is evident. So um, there's a lot of stuff in sleep medicine that's changing a lot. I, I trained in sleep medicine many years ago as well. And trying to think through so much has changed. And along the way, a lot of my pulmonary colleagues, I'm sure yours as well, have either stopped doing sleep medicine or they don't do as much of it. And it's becoming less known, but a lot of them might be listening to your podcast today and wondering, you know, I haven't really kept up with sleep and I haven't really kept up with the discipline at all. What are the main issues in sleep medicine today that physicians, especially pulmonary and trauma medicine physicians need to know? I'll start with you, Anissa. So I think broadly, I think that, that we've realized a little bit more that all obstructive sleep apnea is not the same. I think we're moving in a direction of different phenotypic uh, sleep apnea in one in one sense, right? One person may have sleep apnea because they have a very low arousal threshold and, and that causes disruption of their airway. Another person might have it because of obesity. Another person might have it because of a small mandible. So there's different kinds of phenotypes. And I think we're, I think the field has moved into a direction of being more cognizant of that. We haven't quite gotten to the place where we can truly do goal-directed care based on that, but I would say that's the movement that we're going in and we're building literature and, and, and data to support. Um, so that's one thing. I think the other thing is that we have learned a lot about being realistic about what outcomes we're really affecting in sleep medicine. I think that we still need to continue to look at cardiovascular outcomes and really look very carefully at the way studies are designed when they when they look at those endpoints. And that adherence is probably more important than we had previously recognized, I think, in, in a lot of pieces. And that sometimes the most advanced equipment is not always the best. I think that's probably one of the more recent lessons we've learned as well. To summarize, basically, that the OSA, the traditional sleep apnea patient as we know it, that there's a huge phenotype from the one that I think Seema described earlier, that horrible heart failure is very different than the patient potentially with minor comorbidities that has really relatively easy to treat CPAP, sleep, sleep apnea with CPAP at a, at a modest setting. And looking at those phenotypes is very important. The other part is really understanding the impact that we have and moving towards what I think you're kind of getting as a personalized outcomes-based approach. That's pretty accurate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. Seema, what are you seeing in the field? So I, I totally agree. And I think, I think we're past that sort of all roads lead to CPAP. But what I think also we need to be cognizant of is that you know, the sense, I think, with a lot of our colleagues is that this is OSA medicine, and it's not, right? It's sleep medicine. So we do anything related to sleep. And I think sometimes that gets lost with just, I think, 80% of our patients have OSA, right? And so then I think the other parts get lost. And, and the messaging, too, is that even if somebody has OSA, right? And I'm sure, Anissa, you see this all the time and just follow, but 
okay, fine, let's say their sleep apnea is treated, but they're still sleepy. Well, there's still more work to be done, right? And, and aside from the different treatment options now that we have, which is so much better than where we started, right? But then just that ability to have that conversation with the patient for them to recognize that, okay, let's say the sleep apnea is treated, but you're still sleepy. There is still something that we can do, right? And I think a lot of patients aren't aware of that. Yeah, I think you bring up a very good point. I think it also is interesting as you're talking, I'm thinking about there's a movement in ICU medicine and pulmonary medicine to get to know patients, to get to know their life, to get to know their social determinants or so whatever that sort of the terminology might be. Um, I think sleep medicine already did that. I think you already got a sense of sort of the psychology. What are the social factors? What are the partners' relationships? What's the home life look like? And I think getting into that is a very interesting field. I think sometimes I think pulmonary critical care physicians like ourselves, our colleagues and such probably don't probably stop short of just looking at the path therapy and the and the and the physiological derangements without the psychological and the social underpinnings. Is that would you agree with that? Yeah. And I think the other thing too, to really be respectful of is, you know, it's such a privilege for patients to allow us into this very intimate part of their lives, right? Like who sees you sleep? It's people that you choose to allow you to see you sleep. And so, you know, a lot of the time you do wind up talking about, you know, childhood sexual trauma. You talk about all of these things that then show themselves at night when our guard is down. And it's such an incredible privilege for them to allow us into that space. And then you add to it, now we're doing telemedicine into the home. So you're literally in their bedroom, right? You're literally in their space. And what a responsibility that is for us. Wow, really Seema, impressive. I couldn't agree with you more. I, to, to the point that I actually teach my fellows that. I think, I mean, that's one of the first things I tell them is that you're, so once I had a fellow who, you know, walked out as the patient was, was talking about their, their son's Taekwondo. And I was like, Oh, wait, 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 what are you doing? And, and the first thought was, yeah, but you know, we've got three patients waiting and this doesn't affect care and said, Oh, actually so much, it does affect care because we are asking them to do very, very specific things that are hard for them to buy into. And if, if that patient doesn't feel that you care about their whole life, then, then why would, why would they follow our instructions? Right. And I, and it is an absolute privilege. I feel like in some ways, sometimes I feel like I have more patients walk out of my clinic in tears than any other clinic because we talk about these. And, and it's not because I mean, I promise. It's because it's because I ask those questions that are hard to answer that are really important to the outcomes that we're dealing with. Anissa, I go through more Kleenex in my sleep clinic than I did in my like lung cancer clinic. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I would have to agree with that. And it's really interesting that you both are seeing this as well. Well, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. So sleep's taking off now in terms of public awareness, which is kind of cool, right? We've been asking this for this for decades for everyone to recognize how important sleep is. Look at this. It's such an important aspect of public health. And now it's taking off to a whole new level where now everyone's talking about their sleep to the point where they have gadgets, they have watches, they have, and I have patients every week telling me, oh, my watch tells me this, or my app tells me this. What are you seeing for that, that for the pulmonary critical care or the internal medicine physician, there are a lot of gadgets and apps and technology out there. What are things they need to pay attention to these days? Seema, we'll start with you since this is right up your alley of the IASM work that you've done. You know, I love gadgets. And I think that it at minimum has allowed people to understand that sleep is important. And I think it, it is almost its gateway, right, for people to become interested in their sleep. And so I remember probably 
I don't know, five, six, seven years ago, people, it was very patient initiated, right? They would come in with their Fitbit or what have you and say, hey, my sleep is different than my, my friends and what's wrong with my sleep. Whereas now I find myself soliciting that information, right? You know, when I'm doing my exam, I'll see their Fitbit. I'll say, oh, hey, do you have your app? And let's look at it. And I think for me, the messaging is, you know, we're not, you know, we're not exactly sure about the accuracy of this information. However, can we look at the trend, right? Can we glean important information from this? Can it at least make us more cognizant of our bedtime routine, right? And our wake time and sleep time. Even if all the awakenings may not be accurate and the sleep staging may not be accurate, at least people are paying attention to their sleep. And now that a lot of these devices have oximetry built in, all of a sudden patients are saying, hey, my oxygen saturation is 80. And then you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> this is a problem. Let's take a look. Anissa, you have any thoughts on this? It's funny just while you said that, because I was, I'm looking at, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about you as, as Seema saying this, and both you and I have engineering backgrounds. And so what we were always taught, don't try to extrapolate more from the data than the data can tell you, which is why I agree with sort of what, what Seema said as an overall thing is you need to sort of take it in trends because we don't have the level of validation data that we would like to, to be able to say an absolute diagnosis based on something. But I do think that I agree in that probably the most purposeful piece of this is increasing the awareness of the individual. So in telling an individual, hey, maybe, you know what, the reason you're so tired is you're actually only sleeping five hours a night, right? So big macro data versus micro data. I think that has been helpful or, you know what, you're getting out of bed on the weekends five to six hours later than you are on the weekdays. That's a pretty big difference. That might be shifting your circadian clock. And that might be why you have such a hard time going to bed on Sunday night. So big pieces like that, especially versus, Hey, on Tuesday, I noticed I woke up five more times than I did on Monday. Does that mean, you know, that I, that I stopped breathing more? Well, we, we, we may not be able to, to glean that information. Right. I didn't know you guys are both engineers. I love engineer patients that come with a spreadsheet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh they make their own spreadsheets for me. Those are my favorites. <laughs> Actually, it's great. Except when they ask you to, when they ask you to like, when they wonder why you haven't looked at their entire spreadsheet in detail and <laughs> understood every data point, that is not so fun. But it sounds like you're both saying is that you like the trend of people paying attention to sleep the discipline is, as a whole, looking at it for their own wellness and overall health, that's getting the attention that it needs, uh, importance it needs for people's health. And that looking at big trends and not necessarily individual data points, not necessarily relying on the data itself, but more the idea of giving a whole part, partly putting in a whole, holistic picture of what you're looking at for the patient. Is that about right? Yep, I think so. So sleep was doing really well. And I remember seeing both of you at some meetings here on, and then we were kind of sailing upwards in membership and excitement and all this stuff. And then along comes COVID-19, you know, and it's affected a lot of what we do in sleep medicine. And so it's interesting to sort of see in the sleep clinic, what are you seeing from the pandemic uh, a little bit about how your patients now are, and families are managing now with their sleep in the setting of both working from home, the shift in the pandemic or other things that you're, that you're seeing? Start with you, Anissa. So I think there's three, when, as you're saying this, there's three different big things that I've noticed. Number one, during the pandemic, I think sleep medicine was the one clinic visit that a lot of people dropped off. So our clinics really died down. Our sleep labs actually shut down for, for a big portion of time, in part because we shifted those beds over to COVID beds. So that changed the field a bit. And now everybody's trying to get back in. So I think there, so there's, there's an absence from sleep medicine from a patient standpoint, that's piece one. 
Piece two, some patients, I just saw several patients over the past week that haven't used their CPAP in a year and a half to two years because they were afraid that if they got COVID, they could disseminate it by using positive pressure, which is not all that wrong, right? If you did. So we don't, we don't know that, but they didn't want to take that chance. So they came to see me to get back on track. So I think that's another thing that we weren't really aware of that, that some patients were doing. And then I think probably the most overwhelming thing that at least I've seen in my practice, and it'd be interesting to see, to hear if the two of you have noticed the same thing, but a marked increase in insomnia. And I think that that's probably in part related to dampened circadian amplitudes because of people being indoors all day and flipping their lights on at night and really decreasing that. And I think it's also affected sleep hygiene because people are working from their bedrooms and working from their homes. And I think it's been affected by increased stress because of job loss and trying to balance kids and, you know, your dogs and managing your family and your life and all of your hats all of a sudden have to be worn at the same time, which is very hard to balance. So I think that's what, that's what I've noticed. And I think that hasn't, we have not come out of that piece yet. Wearing all your hats at once. You're right. You know, my, I had two that like were like the different. Dr. Seuss book, right? Where you're wearing all those hats. That's what I have in my head. The Dr. Seuss book of all the hats on your head. <laughs> Sorry. Like true. I had two that were distance learning and I was doing telemedicine at home and I've got these two dogs and, you know, and, and we had to upgrade our Wi-Fi twice just because everybody was using up so much bandwidth. So you're right. I mean, I, and I'm sure have you guys also seen that sort of difference, right? Where some people in these zoom neighborhoods were able to catch up on their sleep and they're doing way better. And then the other group of like, you know, frontline workers that had way more insomnia and stress. Like I, I have one lady that works at a big box store and people were literally like, they were awful to her. They're spitting at her. And so she had to take a leave of absence because she was so worried about her health. You know, so I, I, I definitely see this split in populations for how they reacted to COVID. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, Anissa, as you were saying, I was kind of thinking through, you touched on a little bit of the stresses of the various push and pulls from the occupational to the home to the this nebulous balance concept in a very tough environment to navigate. And both of you, I know, are working moms who are, you know, in this. And so how are you coping with all this? How is your sleep, am I asking, without being a <laughs> HIPAA violator? I think there's been pros and cons for the pandemic for me, honestly. So because I do a lot of outpatient medicine, it was really hard for me to get to a lot of, of our departmental meetings and our big meetings because I didn't have time to drive the half hour, the hour to a meeting, sit for an hour and then drive an hour or half hour back through campus to get to my office. So I missed a lot of meetings prior to the pandemic. We were just talking about this and now that all... All, virtually every meeting is being offered on Zoom or another you know, webinar platform. Attendance has gone up and there's been a better sense of unity, at least among our division. And, and we actually were just talking about this today is that rather than while we absolutely want to get back to being face-to-face, -face, it's probably going to be a hybrid. So I think that's been a positive. But on the flip side of that, I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but meetings are eking into the evening and into the morning. So people are very, very commonly adding on a meeting at seven o'clock at night or so because they're like oh we don't have to go we can all just hop on zoom at seven no one minds hopping on a zoom call at seven i'm like dude my kids have soccer practice at seven i'm not even home. i'm getting i've taken more zoom calls from the car on a soccer field than i can tell you you're totally right it's so true isn't it and those boundaries like it's so much harder to have those boundaries when you can oh i'll just read a quick study 
or, oh, let me just go respond to this email. And then two hours later, right, you're still there. And so that work home, it's just that there's no like finite line anymore, right? Like there's no 20 minutes in the car to decompress. Yeah. <laughs> like a five minute, like walk downstairs and here's your office and here you go. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there, I don't think there's an evening where I don't do some work. I mean, I've always worked some in the evenings, but it's, it's, I mean, I'm actually so tech, theoretically I'm 80% full-time equivalent. So I'm not even supposed to be a full-time, but I do like every weekend and every evening. Right. And I think it's just because it's become more the norm and we're more comfortable working in our home space. So that lends itself to our final question, which is uh, one of the things we asked our, our guests is the idea of you know, the gender bias, the whole movement towards more, more of an integration of women in, in leadership roles and in medicine in general, it's finally happening. You know, my, my own wife's a physician and I think I can think back to when we were just talking about yesterday, how when she was pregnant with her, with our, with our first child, how even maternity leave was only two weeks. I had no paternity leave. I went basically, we delivered the baby and then I went straight to the ICU uh, afterwards uh, while she was recovering. It was just not expected. And now things are changing, but still have a ways to go. And so what do you, what, what advice would you have for women in, in, women in the field right now in sleep or in pulmonary or in critical care medicine that you have for them and that stories that you wanna share of any sorts, particular lessons? So I'll, I'll go because part of this is near and dear to my heart. I think that sometimes we're our own worst enemy. There is lots of literature supporting the fact that women will not apply for a position until we believe we have met 150% of that criteria. Whereas a man will say, screw it. I'm about 35% there. I'm going to go for it. And that doesn't, and, and, and the reality is, is you're going up against each other. And, and so, and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that. The point is, is Maybe you should, maybe you should go a little bit earlier, right? So I just now am and going up for promotion. And somebody told me the same thing. They're like, why, why'd you wait till now? Right. And so I think and in, in, in the irony is I was like, I don't think I'm ready yet. Right. So I do, I think I and and what that lends towards is imposter syndrome. So that can happen to anyone. It tends to happen to people who are more successful and more driven. I don't know that it's, you know, that some of the qualities that lend towards imposter syndrome are negative, necessarily bad, right? Humility is a good thing. Imposter syndrome is not because that's when it becomes a limiting factor um, to your success. So my advice is if you're unsure of something, get external opinions because that's helpful oftentimes for somebody who's in that position of imposter syndrome who can help to support you. Identify supportive sponsors and mentors who can help to both emotionally and physically so, you know, support you in your career. Um, because I think oftentimes the reason we don't have women in certain positions is because we're just not applying for them. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I remember when I was pregnant with my first I was in the ICU and I went into preterm labor at like seven months and I was, um, and of course it took me forever to figure it out. <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> when I went out on bed rest. They had never had another physician at that facility go through the same thing. So they didn't know what to do with me. And I didn't have a female colleague to say, oh, this is what disability insurance is for. So I just went out on PTO and unpaid leave when I shouldn't have. And you don't know that. And honestly, it took me probably five years till I figured that out. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's just one of those things that you almost, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but you almost, you don't want to draw attention to being female and having something that in your head 
makes you feel like you're not as competitive or you're, you're less than, or this is a liability, right? right? Like, you know, when you're pregnant, you announce to your partners, you're pregnant, you can see them all mentally do the math for like, who's on call that week that you're due, (laughs) right? And so, you know, I think if possible, even to have a female mentor, you know, or someone that you can just like you're saying, like your support group or people that you can say, hey, I want to go out for this. And that will be honest with you and say, yeah, you should totally apply to that. You know, I tell my oldest daughter that same thing that you said about women will wait until they're well, you know, they're 100% qualified for something before they apply and, and men won't. And that's not to say that one is, you know, that it's one way is better than the other, but just by numbers, then we're not, you know, shooting the, the puck at the net as often as the guys are, right? So we're not going to score those goals as frequently. Yeah, I, I agree. And then my, my only other, if it's okay with you, just fall, just my only other comment, when we talk about diversity and inclusion, this applies to both women and, and underrepresented minorities. Like I don't, you mentioned something that, that made me sad. And then I do as well, that we feel that you're almost considering, you know, being female, a liability. And what we need to transition to is not saying that I don't want, that I'm not different than men. And that as, you know, that, that as somebody of a different race, that I'm not different. I actually think it's okay to be different. And in fact, kind of embrace that difference because our differences is what brings our value. And I think that's where we need to get to. That's sort of the pinnacle, right? Is where we say, it's okay to be different. Actually, my difference brings my, is, is part of my value and that's what I'm going to bring, right? I agree. I think we need to embrace our differences as our strengths. You know, to your point, when you're with your fellow that walked out on the person talking about Taekwondo, you know, we may be more in tune to that sort of emotional part of it or willing to listen or, or, or maybe just, you know, maybe we can identify a little bit more with some of the things that our patient, patients do share with us. And so hey, you're right. I think we have to reframe it, that this is a strength. This is not a weakness necessarily. I completely agree with both of you. I think um, that is well said. And I cannot close this podcast without talking about what we were talking about before we started, which was basically the aspect of, Anissa, you were talking about how you have this strong opinion about how to handle a massive recent change in the sleep world and how you want to attack it and how you want to approach it. Talk to us a little bit about what the issue is, if you don't mind, and sort of say how you had, if you had all, all the way of holding the cards and had to design, how you would handle um, this massive uh, attention-seeking issue that's happened in our field. Yeah. You just threw so, Anissa this giant hot potato. Yeah. Like, so so I, don't have an, I don't have a great answer, but I'll, but I'll talk about the problem and what the problems I foresee are for sure. So what Dr. Singh is referring to is a large recall of, you know, almost 50% of the PAP positive airway pressure machines in the world. Well, the U.S. has had a recall. I think there's a safety warning in other countries, but it's, a, it's an international problem. So Respironics has, has recalled lots of their devices. It's important for you to know, because if you're not in the pulmonary critical care sleep field, you may not have heard of this. If you have a patient who's on a Respironics device, they should absolutely go to the website and register their device for the recall. I think myself, along with a lot of other folks, are a little bit frustrated by the paucity of information out there and the actual risk. And, and I'm going to ask both of you to stop me and correct me if you feel like I'm not, if I'm misspeaking or if I'm not representing anything accurately. Sure. Um, but the way I understand it, 
there is a foam ring that's used for sound abatement in these devices that is made out of polyurethane, which in and of itself is fine. But they found that some of these have been degraded. And if they're degrading, the concern is that particles of polyurethane could be inhaled and it's a potential carcinogen. It's also a potential airway irritant. So that's, that's the theoretical risk. There's also some discussion around the ozone-based cleaners potentially exacerbating that breakdown. So Respironics made in their statement, a blanket statement that if you're using PAP, you should stop using it because of this risk, unless it's a ventilator and you can talk to your physician, which has left healthcare providers in a bit of a lurch. And the, and the problem is, so I'll, you know, I'll just address the problem. The problem is really that we're trying to balance the risk of going untreated for sleep disordered breathing with this unknown nebulous risk of potential, the C word, right? Cancer, which is really scary. And so there's a really acute potential risk um, with this potential chronic unknown risk. And, and we, and it's very, very hard to make clinical decisions when you don't have the known risk, right? So again, as talking about an engineer, we're looking and comparing data that we don't know have data points for, and that's extremely frustrating. And so the answer is, is we're handling, I think I've talked to colleagues around the country and I think every, every colleague I've talked to is handling it a little bit differently. So there's absolutely not a, a blanket answer. Um, and I don't have a blanket answer for what to do. If I did, I would, you know, be in much better shape. But the answer is, is I'm, I'm having very, you know, personalized conversations with most patients that, that reach out. Seema, do you have any thoughts on this whole problem that's a pretty hot button item right now in sleep medicine? Well, I think what Anissa said is exactly right. Not only is there this paucity of information, but then we are straining our own resources trying to communicate with patients right? Because the patients aren't calling Phillips, they're calling us. And then they feel, you know, they're scared and they're worried. And then we have to really, you know, we spent years talking about how important it is for them to use this machine. And now all of a sudden we're saying, okay, well, you know, maybe we don't need to use this machine anymore. And, and so it really does, it really leaves us in this conundrum where then, you know, we are talking about non-PEP options. We're talking about maybe transitioning to the competitor's device. We're talking about all of these different things and yet we don't know what the risks are and we don't know how to assess, right? There's no clear guidance on, should we be doing imaging? Should we be doing PFTs, right? Should we be checking their devices? Is there a way that we can check if they are, you know, is it just the, the physical degradation of the foam? Can we measure the VOCs? Is there a repair and replace program? You know, there are just so many unknowns that that in and of itself, I think, lends to the stress, both for the clinicians as well as the patients, you know, because we're always striving to advocate for our patients and provide them with education. But when we don't know, I think it makes us really feel like we're at a loss for what to do. I think I echo both your sentiments. This is a very frightening time for many of our patients. I and mean, I think it's a very important time for us to have as a discipline, strong leadership that really gets in there. And I appreciate both of you ladies really exemplifying very strong leadership and passion about doing what's right. 
responding to a crisis and helping to navigate through these very complex waters. So thank you. Thanks for joining us today on this podcast. We covered a lot of ground. We covered sort of what drove you in this field. We covered what your interests are. We covered aspects of what are phenotypes of OSA, starting to demystify that a little bit, getting towards more personalized therapies, more outcomes-based driven things, and then therapies in general, and how sleep medicine has evolved from back when I trained to basically being a CPAP doctor to being much more thinking about the overall patient's needs and a much more intimate insight into the patient's life. We talked a lot about um, how to um, thinking about um, how to get patients better sleep, but also thinking where technology fits in that role and thinking, understanding the role of technology, perhaps a little bit, how we can also use that technology and potentially enhance their overall health and lifestyle and maybe make things better for all. Um, We talked about the COVID-19. We talked about what happened with that. I think we won't going through how the sleep labs went down and how adherence went nuts for a little while. And that now we're dealing with other aspects like insomnia prevalence has just skyrocketed and the complexities of that with the social challenges people are facing today, couple that all together that we need strong people in sleep medicine. We didn't, talk, we didn't touch on certain other things like telemedicine. I'm sure we'd love to at some point have you back talk to us a little about that and where that's going. Um, and then, but we did talk about the current uh, respironics recall of the uh, of, of the um, the masks and how that's a change, how that's a hot button item right now. Was there anything else I missed? No, just to clarify, not the masks, right? The the right. CPAP devices. The CPAP devices. Sorry. Um, no, no, sorry. The CPAP devices. Was there anything else I missed? And any other parting thoughts? I just want to say it was been a pleasure having you both today. The only the only other thing that I would just note is I think there is absolutely still a need for more individuals in this field to care for these patients. This problem is not going away. The awareness is increasing and the patient population is increasing. And, you know, we don't necessarily have a high attrition rate, which is a good thing. So I do think that, you know, we should remember that lots of different fields can feed into sleep medicine, internal medicine, pediatrics, psychiatry, otolaryngology, I think I said internal medicine, pulmonary critical care, psychiatry. Did I miss something? I can't remember missing. Cardiology. Oh, cardiology. That's right. Thank you. This is a field that you can come to from many places. Yeah, the diversity aspect. Seema, what are your thoughts? No, and, and I think Anise is exactly right. And we would welcome you. You know, I think that each of us brings brings with us our own individual background. Like, for example, you two with your engineering backgrounds, right? You offer that unique perspective. And, and sleep is ubiquitous, right? It, it, we all need sleep. This isn't just the sort of sick population, right? And with all the media attention, I think people are understanding the importance of better sleep. And we do need more people in our field. And we are trying to, you know, continue to improve it for the next generation. Like all of Anissa's fellows and the medical students, I would encourage you all to consider a career in sleep medicine. On behalf of Consultant 360, I can't thank you both enough for taking the time. It's been a lot of fun and it's been a lot of joy. I know both of you for some time, but I feel like I know you both a little bit better today. Take care, have a wonderful day and forward to hearing more from you in the future. Thank you.